Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. November is a somber month, low light with a spectral quality, stark and reminiscent of lost dreams. But despite his flamboyant reputation, it is also a month I associate with Oscar Wilde. Not so much because he died in November in 1900, at the age of 46, but because it was the month in which he finally broke with his lover, Lord Alfred Douglas, and left the villa in Naples that would be the last place he would ever call home. But before we get there, let us unfurl the ribbon of the past to 1864, when Oscar was 10 years old, and holidaying with his mother and siblings in Tower Cottage in the fashionable seaside resort of Bray, when, on a summer afternoon like any other, a young woman called Mary Travers walked up and down the seafront handing out pamphlets, accusing William Wilde, Oscar's father, and a highly respected eye surgeon, of sexual misconduct, when nothing would ever be the same again. Enraged, Oscar's mother, Speranza, wrote a letter to Mary Travers's father, complaining about his daughter's conduct. When she discovered the letter in her father's possession, Mary Travers sued Speranza for libel. The case was a national sensation. Only Oscar's own infamous trial, more than 30 years later, would eclipse it. And the years following it were full of tragedy for the Wilde family. Oscar's younger sister, Isola, died aged 10, and his two half-sisters, Emily and Mary, perished in a fire. The family finances declined, and in 1876, William Wilde himself died, leaving his wife in not-so-genteel poverty. There must have been moments in each of their lives. William, Speranza, their children, perhaps especially Oscar, of a terrible desire to turn back the clock to that summer afternoon on Bray Seafront, and this time to lock the door against Mary Travers, sit quietly and wait for the danger to pass. But clocks cannot be turned back. Wind on then, 31 years later, to 1895, when the Marquis of Queensbury, the father of Lord Alfred Douglas, left a card at Wilde's club inscribed with the word Somdamite to the moment when Wilde decided to sue Queensbury for libel, and finally to that fatal moment when, facing charges of gross indecency and urged by his friends to flee, Wilde was reportedly pressured by his mother to stay and face the trial. Wilde was sentenced by the Crown Court to two years' hard labour. During his time in prison... His mother and older brother Willie died and he was forbidden all communication with his two sons whose surnames were changed. Despite all of this, within months of leaving Reading Jail, Wilde was writing to Lord Alfred Douglas, I feel that my only hope of again doing beautiful work in art is being with you. I feel that it is only with you that I can do anything at all Do remake my ruined life for me, and then our friendship and love will have a different meaning to the world. In September of that year, 
Wilde and Douglas set up home together in the Villa Giudici in a quiet village north of Naples. I imagine the autumn heat in Italy. How good it must have felt after those dead years in prison. How fresh the bread must have tasted. How sweet the wine. How beautiful the view from the windows of the villa looking out over the Bay of Naples. I imagine Wilde taking a book from a shelf, reading a little, staring out the window, sensing the first glimmer of a desire to write again. But by November, the dream of a new life was fading. Without funds, continuing to live together seemed impossible and the two men parted. In his collection of essays, The Space Between, Michael Bracewell refers to the endlessly renewing nostalgia of seaside towns. He is writing about English resorts such as Brighton and Blackpool and Margate. But on this side of the Irish Sea, we have our own such towns, of which Bray is one. Standing on its promenade with the still November sea blurring grey across an indistinct horizon to merge with the sky... It is not impossible to picture Oscar Wilde as a boy running along the seashore in a striped bathing suit, ignoring the cold in that way children do because nothing is worth interrupting fun. He is carrying a bucket and spade, and Isola running behind with her hair untied, and Willie is up ahead with a fishing net leading the way, unaware of that ribbon that runs through families leaving its stubborn imprint of nurture and nature, from generation to generation, the past repeating itself in order to be free of the past. The Custom House in Dublin is probably one of the city's best-known landmarks. Built in the 1780s during an architectural renaissance led by the Wide Streets Commission, it was perhaps the era's most significant achievement. Over 120 metres in length and nearly 70 metres deep, it was the first major building in Dublin designed to be seen from all sides. It was the Dublin building most depicted in paintings in the 19th century and is probably one of the most photographed today. The physical deterioration towards the end of the 18th century of Dublin's previous custom house, near what is now Grattan Bridge at Capel Street, prompted moves for a new building. Some argued a location further downstream would be easier for ships to access. Others resisted as it would move this key building away from their businesses. But if the custom house were moved eastwards, further bridges could be built across the Liffey and open up lands to the east for property development. And so two men, John Beresford and Luke Gardner, who both had personal and familial interests in property in this area, arranged, or rather conspired, for a new custom house to be built at its now familiar location. 
Ultimately, this allowed for the construction of bridges, where O'Connell Bridge and Butt Bridge are today. These bridges connected the two sides of the river and not only made Beresford and Gardner tidy sums of money, they also changed the geography of the capital and gave us a remarkable building. The Custom House was designed by architect James Gandon. Born in London in 1743, Gandon was apprenticed to the great neoclassical architect William Chambers. Remarkably, the Custom House was his first major commission. It became one of the city's busiest buildings, with ships docking at the nearby quays, paying excise duties and conducting other business. Over time, a number of government departments were located there, and it became the second most important government building in 19th century Dublin, after Dublin Castle. It was because of this prominence, symbolism and administrative importance that hundreds of members of the IRA attacked the Custom House on May 25th 1921, in what was one of the last and the largest IRA actions of the War of Independence. Five people died during the attack. The ensuing fire burned for a week, with temperatures reaching 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. The Custom House was gutted, its dome destroyed and countless government documents burned. But, thankfully, Gandon's facades and external adornments remained largely intact. It's hard to overstate the magnitude of the challenge that faced the cash-strapped Free State in its early years to rebuild the completely gutted Custom House. Indeed, its reconstruction was far from a foregone conclusion, with one proposal calling for what remained to be demolished and the area turned into a park. But, largely thanks to the chief OPW architect TJ Byrne, who saved money by using direct labour and reusing hundreds of thousands of bricks, the Custom House was restored, along with the GPO and the forecourts. Though handsomely reconstructed, the Custom House's central position in the life of the city was receding. Already somewhat obscured by the Loop Line Railway Bridge built in the 1880s, it faded further from public engagement with the erection of railings in the 1940s, the increase in traffic on the encircling roads and the business of the shipping industry moving further downstream. But in recent decades, the edifice of the Custom House has re-emerged into popular consciousness as the backdrop to public events, including St. Patrick's Day fireworks in the 1990s and recent New Year's Eve concerts. But looking at it from afar misses out on what for me are some of the most interesting parts of the building, the various sculptures. Above the north entrance are sculptures of figures representing the continents, reflecting the building's international aspect. Above the pediment, overlooking the Liffey, are sculptures of two female figures representing Ireland and Britain. The two women have their arms around each other and look like they are walking home after a good night out on the town. But my favourite of all are the riverine heads, or river gods as some people call them. Carved by Dubliner Edward Smith, some of these heads would be familiar to those over a certain age. Because between the late 1920s and the conversion to the Euro, they featured on Irish pound notes. But seeing the originals close up is very rewarding. Half the heads are easily visible from the footpath along the River Liffey. Among them are the sleepy face of the slow-moving River Urn, featuring fish, a scallop, a droopy beard and moustache fashioned out of river weeds, 
and an eel wriggling to get free from his closed mouth. There is the stubborn, defiant face of the River Foyle, 1689, the date of the Siege of Derry on its brow, above which the prow of a ship breaks through fortifications and chains, symbolising the lifting of the siege. The sullen face of the barrow has a beard made up of small fishes and is crowned by a sheep with legs splayed. And so, 230 years after it was constructed, the Custom House remains, from its magisterial facades to its finely carved riverine heads, not only an architectural masterpiece, but an essential part of the city of Dublin. Goethe once described great architecture as frozen music. If that is the case, then the Custom House must be a symphony. When I was a teenager in the 1980s, my grandmother came to live with us in the small Midland town we'd moved to after we left the north. All her life she'd lived in Belfast, only to find herself a hundred miles from home, a widow lodging in someone else's house. As my sisters and brother and I grew up and her health failed, she seemed to retreat from the everyday goings-on in our house. She took to sitting in one of our gold velour armchairs the tube of her catheter bag slung over the sleeve of her dressing gown like the straps of a handbag, telling stories of her girlhood. I read somewhere that there was no such thing as teenagers until after the Second World War. My grandmother, Hannah Maguire, grew up in Ardoin during the 20s. She went to work in a linen mill at 14, yet she and her friends had distinctly teenage preoccupations. They bobbed their hair, scrimped, saved and mended to dress in the flapper style, danced the Charleston and went to the pictures. These interests didn't always sit well with Hannah's mother, a severe woman who'd been left a widow in 1915 when her husband was killed at the front. Hannah was only seven when she lost her father. Her mother thought the teenage Hannah vain and frothy and rarely missed an opportunity to say so. Hannah's idol was the Italian actor Rudolf Valentino. He was given roles that exploited his dark hair and eyes, his smouldering good looks. He played an Arab sheik, a tango dancer, a French aristocrat, a bullfighter. He dressed in extravagant costumes and gave audiences scene after scene of brooding glances and passionate clutches. Off screen, he was at the centre of an infamous sex scandal, which only added to his appeal. But in 1926, Valentino died suddenly of peritonitis. My grandmother learned of his death at the pictures from a Pathé newsreel. The headline read, Valentino dies, thousands throng streets. Fairbanks, Barrymore, carry coffin. The film flickered and jumped and my grandmother could hardly believe what she was seeing. A hundred thousand people, mostly women, lined the streets of Manhattan for his funeral. 
Mounted police had been deployed to corral them away from the funeral home and the women responded by dragging the officers from their horses. Windows were smashed and the rioting continued well into the night. My grandmother told me that the patrons of the Forum Picture House in Ardoin, themselves no strangers to civil disorder, were deeply impressed. Valentino's body was laid out on a plinth surrounded by lilies and palms and covered with a heavy cloth embroidered with the letters IHS. He's a Catholic, someone said, and Rudolf Valentino was one of their own. The Millies clung to each other and cried, their Cupid's bows pursed as tight as the looms they worked, their bobbed hair so full of setting lotion it barely moved. Valentino was dead. Hannah, having lost her father when she was a child, knew what that meant. That she'd think of him every day and that nothing would ever be the same again. Valentino's last film was a big budget epic called Son of the Sheik. It was set not east of Suez, but south of Algiers. Valentino played both the Sheik and his son, and my grandmother couldn't decide which of them she loved the most. Over the following months, she saw the film dozens of times, until she knew it by heart. The line that made her cry every time was, My young lion, your people would gladly pay 10,000 francs to look at your handsome face again. One Saturday in November, Hannah put on her coat, pulled her cloche hat over her ears and went out. She crossed the Crumlin Road to Holy Cross Church and went up the steps. There was a heavy box on a marble table in the hall with a sign pinned to it that said November Deadlist. She tried to remember the last time she'd seen her father, but his face had long since faded from her memory. All she could see when she tried to conjure up his image was how he looked in the only photograph they had of him that was taken five weeks before the telegram came. She took a piece of paper from her pocket and opened it carefully. In her best script she had written John Maguire, 1881-1915 Rudolf Valentino, 1895-1926 She had almost put Rifleman in front of her father's name, but thought better of it. Her beloved Valentino needed no introduction. She folded the paper, kissed it quickly and slipped it into the slot on the top of the box. She whispered goodbye to the two men she had loved and lost and stood with her heart pounding in her chest. When the priest read the names from the altar the next day, her mother would kill her. My friend Eddie Jordan phoned. I hadn't heard from him for years. When I was 20, and he a little younger, we headed off to Paris with a few quid, no job and no return tickets. It was a life-changing experience. We drifted apart over the years, but we're always only a phone call away. Then in June 2008, Eddie called. 
His 50th birthday was approaching and he thought he'd like to do something a bit different. He explained that the American artist Spencer Tunick, renowned for his large-scale outdoor nude photography, was inviting people to pose for him on the South Wall in Dublin. Eddie was thinking it would be a great way to celebrate his milestone. Go for it, I said. The thing is, he said, I don't fancy going alone. If Eddie was 50, I was a bit older and long past getting my kit off in public, but a friend in need and all that, so I agreed. It sounded just like the old days. I decided I'd better get a new pair of jocks. It had been six months since Christmas after all and a pack of four wouldn't go astray. Before I knew it, we were standing on the cold stone of the custom house with crowds of strangers waiting for double-decker buses to ferry us to the south wall. I dreaded the thought of meeting someone I knew. It was 4am when we filed off the buses. We were directed to where we should wait until instructed to undress before walking naked to our final destination. Eddie suggested we stand by a pole. It would make it easier to find our clothes in among two and a half thousand bags when it was all over, so we made camp. Never one to idle, he then announced he was going walkabout and abandoned me. After 60 seconds alone, even with everybody fully clothed, I felt completely out of place. Around me were couples and groups of friends and here was I, the 50-something balding sad bloke, turning up to a group nude gig all on his tod. After an eternity, Eddie returned. The system was working, he announced. He couldn't spot me, but he knew the pole. Great, I said. And then he introduced me to two young women. They'd got talking, and then one of the women suggested they three should stick together. Then the young couple beside us explained they weren't a couple at all, and wondered could they join our ever-growing group, and why not, we asked. We spoke about our reasons for being there. I said I was only there because Eddie used emotional blackmail. The two younger women said they loved the whole idea of the photo shoot and they just couldn't wait to begin. It made me feel even more self-conscious, a condition I'm not normally prone to. Finally, as the light improved, the announcement came and the young women waited no longer. Everyone was naked in seconds and in our nudity we were all equal. Except, of course... Some were more equal than others. To get over any awkwardness, we six all agreed to have a good gawk at each other and then started the cold walk along the wall. Everyone was being very well behaved as we stood terribly close to each other waiting for Mr Tunick to approve the light so the shoot could begin. Then a very large passenger ferry appeared with a deck full of people viewing the horizon. What a view they got. Two and a half thousand naked bodies started waving at them. Giddiness galloped through the crowd and we all started to do a Mexican wave. Before we knew it, the rising sun was competing with a group moon. No, I'm not proud of it, but it happened. The participants were never really the same after that. And when that photo shoot was over, Mr Tunick invited anyone who wasn't frozen to death to take part in a second shoot on the beach. We six looked at each other and all nodded. 
one for all and all for one. By the time that shoot was over, we were jumping around singing ole ole ole. Finally, freezing wet and elated, we made our way back to our trusty pole and dry clothes. People moved hurriedly, and within minutes we were all dressed and refreshed. That's when I noticed her. A young woman moving quickly through the fully clad crowd, looking for her clothes. In a few moments everything had changed. She was no longer part of a congenial crowd. She was an outsider, naked and being stared at. Her head was lowered as she scrambled between people's feet, with clearly no idea where she had left her bag. As she reached us, I remembered I still had three pairs of boxers in the packet. Half embarrassed, I offered them. They're brand new, I told her. I don't think she cared. She grabbed a pair and quickly put them on. Then Eddie offered a big spare towel. She flung it over her shoulder like a shawl, tanked him and continued with her search. A little less frantic, a little less noticeable, and finally, not visible at all. I often think of that young woman, and I hope her memories of the day are as happy as mine. And I hope her experience made a great story about how she came to be wearing a strange man's boxer shorts. I'd like to build the world a home and furnish it with love. Grow apple trees and honeybees and snow white turtle doves. I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. I'd like to hold it in my arms and keep it company. I'd like to sing. November rearranges the world. It liberates the last clinging leaves from the branches, smashes slanting rain against windows, lifts the last apples from the battered trees, says a final and definite farewell to autumn. It brings to, in its earliest days, the feasts of all saints and all souls. That time when the veil between the here and the possible there is at its most insubstantial. It becomes the month of remembering. And as this eleventh month blows in with its low grey skies and dark evenings, the man whose life and soul come to mind for me is Leonard Cohen, who died five years ago today. I was blessed to be counted among his friends for more than thirty years, but the last few months of his life are the ones I'll remember most warmly. In the summer of 2016, I approached Leonard with the idea of creating a Requiem Mass for theatre, in memory of some young friends who had died in the previous months. I wanted the Mass to be a recognition of the strength of those left behind in the great darkness of unknowing, the parents and siblings and friends. And I wanted to reflect too on the life of a celebrant who, like a priest friend of mine, had lost his own faith. Leonard's initial response to my suggestion was pithy and droll. I'm a Jewish Buddhist. You're an agnostic Quaker. How are we supposed to write a Catholic Mass? I suggested I do a draft of the text using only his songs and words. 
the entire Mass, with the exception of the readings, would be sung. Over the early months of that summer, I re-listened to everything he had recorded and re-read his Book of Mercy, a collection of psalms he had published in 1984. Little by little, with the help of a musical director, Ashling Carter, the most patient person in the world, the work took shape and we agreed on a text, all except the closing song and the final blessing. And then, late in that summer, an email arrived from Leonard. Among other things, it said, It's two in the morning, been a rough month. The old engine has sprung a few leaks and been in and out of the shop. I don't have the words to express what I feel, but thank you for your friendship. He went on to say, Anything of mine that you want to use in the Mass, feel free to use. In the early hours of the morning of November 10th, my wife Angela woke me to say Leonard's death had been announced on the radio. By then, he was buried in Montreal, going as he had lived, without fuss. The plan had been to stage the Requiem, titled Between Your Love and Mine, in the summer of 2017. We had discussed the possibility of Leonard being here for the premiere. That possibility was now gone. And the Requiem became, in a strange way, not just one for the young people who had died, but for Leonard too. And it remained unfinished. And then Angela pointed out two short passages, one from the song Boogie Street and one from words spoken by Leonard in concert. And we had the final blessing. Come, my friends, be not afraid. We are so lightly here. It is in love that we are made. In love we disappear. May you be surrounded by family and friends all your life. But if this is not your lot, may the blessings find you in your solitude. All that remained was to settle on a recessional hymn, a final song that would carry the cast and the audience to a place of hope and possibility. And of course Leonard had written the perfect song, one whose lyrics contained these lines. Behold the gates of mercy in arbitrary space, and none of us deserving the cruelty or the grace. O solitude of longing, where love has been confined, come healing of the body, come healing of the mind. Even from beyond that flimsiest yet harshest of veils, Leonard's words brought and continue to bring restoration and hope, as in life, so in death. Gather at the brokenness, free to be now. The fragrance of those promises you never dared to vow. A gairu. Tan gaira ikdridamishtach, nalehante igairi nis fuira, the loga a scorba conchul. Teva mo den che tan trida lupa in a ribini liha, iaskari ek diru a machiri kondolik dauselo.
Sawalia Tommy de Gollywood an Rairu. Lischen Wucht lass mu, ags an Tass lästig, tan chischten e Gallooge heeske. Moch rifur im an Eibre, ex saval torhi. Potomur erdn sornneke, lehntele hula glasse. A spoonog regle need a vaske. A sole dirhe er a hiddes, agas proki glinnes an ein, a sterilu, sole nirten si an glohak suve ishtachunta, an maskonig schlaunu amach mar lava yarag e glushach de nieg an schkete. Hibernating. Winter is coming in, the days are getting colder, leaves being swept away. Outside the quay the tide is looped in grey ribbons, fishermen heading out to dance with them. At home we are getting ready to hibernate. With the cold outside and the heat inside, the kitchen is steaming up easily. My sister working, preserving fruit, a big pot on the cooker, full of green apples, her spoon at the ready to mix it, her eyes on the recipe, glass pots in the oven being sterilised before she pours the apple jelly into them, the mix slipping out like red lava moving after the eruption. On the programme this morning, Oscar Wilde in November was by Cathy Sweeney. The Custom House by Tim Carey. November Deadlist by Louise Kennedy. Exposure by Brian Farrell. Come Healing was by John McKenna. And A Gairu or Hibernating, a poem by Catherine Foley. The music was Waltz Number no. 15 in A Major by Brahms, played by Alesso Bax on piano. Beethoven's Symphony No. 7, Second Movement, Allegretto, played by the Orchestra Revolutionnaire et Romantique, conducted by John Elliot Gardner. Kashmiri Love Song, composed by Amy Woodford Finden, played by Julian Lloyd Webber on cello, with John Lenehan on piano. I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing was by The New Seekers, and Come Healing by Leonard Cohen. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Carolyn Dempsey and the producer is Sarah Binchy. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.